0: 1 Corinthians 11, we have reached verse 17. Paul had started chapter 11 saying, now I'm going to praise you, brethren, for their general faithfulness to the traditions he passed on to them. And then he had to instruct them, particularly in relation to head coverings and what was happening in the church. But again, we made the point last week, even in that the language was very different than some of the other things that he had addressed them on. But now when he comes to verse 17 and he's going to address some of what's happening at the Lord's Supper, the language is a little different again. Paul says this now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So Paul, again, had just praised them. But now he is moving on to a more corrective situation, something that uh, is pretty serious happening here in their body. And unfortunately, things are so bad that he literally will say to them, that they come together in verse 17, not for the better, but for the worse. He'll even end this chapter in verse 34, giving them that warning saying, lest you come together for judgment. And I think it's pretty remarkable, even in that simple statement, to say that there's a possibility that a Christian gathering can produce more harm than good. I think we we can take it for granted what we're doing when we come to gather and come to God's house and meet with other believers. And very often there can just be a kind of thought that, hey, when we gather and get together with unbelievers or excuse me, with believers, not unbelievers, that something good has to be happening. But but here Paul's literally saying, no, the way you guys are coming together as believers, it would be better if you didn't do that. You're coming together for the worse. There's something that's being produced in your coming together that isn't good. And the context in this type of coming together that Paul's referring to is what they would call these agape feasts or love feasts where they shared communion together. It seemed to be a practice in the early church. Acts 2.46 speaks about them meeting together regular. Jude 12 would say these, speaking of false teachers, are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So uh, we don't know all the details of the practice, but the idea is many of these believers early saved this Jewish community, 3,000 at once, coming together, kind of giving even of the stuff that they own to bless others. There is this pretty incredible kind of love through the body of Christ. And then particularly as they remembered the Lord in communion, it seems like they would come together and the rich would bring what they had out of their material blessings. And the poor would come and share in that. They would eat a meal together and then also take communion. It's debated. Did they do that first or after? It seems like, though, they remembered the Lord's Supper after they would have this meal together. So, Paul is referring to this kind of context here in their gathering together, and he's reproving them for how they're doing it. He begins to address it in verse 18, saying, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Paul's shocked to say that there's still divisions when you come together. Even as a church for this event, he had addressed divisions earlier. He's going to address divisions later. Again, the word there for divisions, it means rents. Uh, It's translated uh, like tears or rents when Jesus talks about putting a patch on an old garment and it can be rent. That word is used there. It's talked about divisions around the message and person of Jesus Christ. Constantly, the crowds and the religious leaders are divided over him. They argue there was a division over the things that he said. John seven forty three, nine sixteen, ten nineteen. The the idea is we already know there were some party divisions, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, in regards to teachers and certain things being taught. But now he's saying, even in this. And he seems almost like, I don't even want to believe it, but in part, I do. And he'll give a kind of a theological underpinning for why he has to believe this could be true of them. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul's kind of reasoning behind this here. Even though he doesn't want to believe it specifically of them, he knew that this was something that would have to happen in the church. That he says those who are approved may be recognized. And really, this has happened from the early church all the way on. There is always a divisive factor because of the world and the flesh and the devil. He's not necessarily making it happen as much as saying this is a reality. We know it. From the very beginning, Judas was a part of the 12. There was a division there, and it was shown who was approved as a true follower of Christ and who was not. There was Ananias and Sapphira. There were Hymenaeus and Alexander. There were the Judaizers. In the early church, there was these constant kind of... Things that would royal up and positions that believers would be put in to have to make a choice or a stand on something. And Paul's saying, hey, even in your midst, I hear there's divisions. I don't want to believe it, but factions have to come. I know this is a reality. Divisions, tears, heresies are going to appear in the church. And they're going to reveal the truth about God's people. Matthew 18 7 Jesus would say woe to the world because of offenses for offenses must come but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Uh, We're seeing this again all over our world the church in general there's divisions in the Presbyterian church the Anglican church the Methodist church. This is kind of all over the place people are having to make choices And these divisions happen on a local level in churches and they happen in relational levels. At some point, all of us are going to be put in a position where we have to decide whether we're standing with Christ, standing on truth or dividing over something that maybe isn't very important or just going a total different direction. And Paul says, hey, when you see divisions... Understand, They have to come. And they also reveal something. They they also show you who the true disciples are. When Judas left that original crew, if you thought there was going to be one group in the world where there wouldn't be a division, it would be the disciples of Jesus Christ, right? But Jesus allowed that to happen even there because he knew it would happen all through church history. And now we don't have to be scandalized by it. We can recognize Christ is still in control. And it's just important that you and I, I think, are careful about divisive voices in our life. And it's also important we figure out which side we're on. Uh, Very personally, that becomes important, right? Whoa, Jesus was said to the world because of offenses, they have to come. But woe to that man or that woman through whom the offense comes. You don't want to be the person causing that. So Paul says, I don't want to believe this about you guys, but I know it's a reality. This has to happen in the church world. This is going to happen in the church world and that some are going to be approved and recognized through it. Therefore, he's going to come more directly to it now. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul's point here is very simple. They think that they're taking communion. Again, he says in, in 20, he says, when you come together in that one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You, They thought, we're getting together and to have communion. And Paul's saying, actually, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You could, you could emphasize the Lord's there. Because what he's saying, what you're doing is totally out of character with the person who instituted the supper. Your manner of action and interaction within the body of Christ during what you call the Lord's Supper in these feasts is totally out of order. He says, I don't know what you guys are eating, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Something else is going on here. He says, in eating in 21... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry. Another is drunk. He's pointing out some of the, the problems. We don't know exactly how all this works out. There are a lot of different guesses. Most of the time, they would have these meals in a home. In some of the larger homes, there would be a triclinium where there would be a couple tables and a larger atrium. Some people think the rich and kind of well-to-do people were having their, you know, their special crew in the triclinium, and everybody else was kind of on the outside in the atrium, Some people think that it was more about the timing. It seems like he he mentions eating early. Like a bunch of people say, "Oh, it's a seven. Let's show up at six. We'll eat. Oh, we already ate, guys. You know, and there's nothing left." Uh, Certainly, we know in the Old Testament there was different portions that would that were handed out. Sometimes those who were honored would have a larger portion. So maybe some of the more well-to-do people are having the larger portions. The poor people are left kind of separating haves and have-nots and those who are poor are just left with maybe the bread and the wine. Not to mention, he also says, another is drunk. One person's left hungry and another's drunk. It just shows total excess, selfishness, right? However exactly it was working out, said so there's some people there that are so stuffing themselves, another person's sitting there hungry, that's had nothing, and then another person so stuffed themselves that they're totally drunk before they're about to take communion. Paul says, should I praise you for this? This is, this is, it's likely a mix of all these things. We're not sure. There are probably some of the things that he didn't mention that were happening. But the end result was, he says in verse 22, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Despise is the word used in Matthew six twenty four for the two masters. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will love the one or despise or hate the other. It's the same warning given in Matthew 8, 10, 8, 18, 10 for despising little children. Jesus gives a pretty stern warning about that. The, the idea is the Corinthians had turned the table of the Lord into a place of contempt for the people that Jesus died for through their own selfishness and lack of love for one another. Paul has no praise for them in this. Now, it's not like the rest of the church through church history has done communion perfectly here. Uh, Charles Hodge in his commentary says, If within 20 years of its institution the Corinthians had turned the Lord's Supper into a disorderly feast, although the apostles were still alive... We need not wonder at the speedy corruption of the church after their death. Like This is happening, and apostles are alive in the world. The, the people who were literally there at the meal, and it's already messed up. This is humanity here uh, that Jesus came to die for. So what Paul's going to do now is he's going to go back to the very basis of this supper, this communion. And start from there and remind them about something. So verse 23, he says this. "For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Paul goes back to the very beginning of the Lord's Supper. He wants to make the point again that they're not eating the Lord's Supper because their actions do not reflect the institution that came from Jesus Himself. Right? Jesus started this; He passed it down to us, and I just delivered this to you. You know what I? Do- Paul didn't make this up. These weren't his own kind of rules. He's saying this is what I gave to you from Him. Literally, Paul says that he received this from the Lord. Paul's claiming a direct revelation. From Jesus himself. He'll do that on more than one occasion. He'll talk the same in terms of his gospel that he shared in Galatians 1. But uh, somewhere along the line, because Paul was, as an apostle, not like the other ones, Paul was not there at that meal. Paul says Jesus came to him and told him about communion, about that night. That this is such an important thing on Jesus's heart that he will not allow the apostle being sent to the Gentiles to go out without direct institution from him. He's going to put this in Paul's world himself and then send Paul out. And Paul just says, I'm just delivering this to you. I'm, I'm just giving to you what was given to me. People guess as to when or where that happened. Maybe his years in Arabia or at Tarsus. We're not sure. But the point is that, that Paul wants to make, I'm, I am just passing down to you what was given to me from Jesus himself. Again, your, what you're doing in relation to communion is, is totally out of whack with the character of the person who instituted this meal. And they needed to see that. Now, certainly Paul will also bring up, I I think, in the context here, this is important. He says that the Lord Jesus, in verse 23, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. He also wants them to say, or to see here, that when Satan was doing his worst, the Bible literally says Satan entered into Judas. When Satan was doing his worst, Christ was victoriously giving one of our most cherished blessings. Jesus is still winning. But the night that Jesus was instituting this, he's literally being betrayed. And sitting at that first communion table was a person that was a betrayer. And yet, how did Christ treat him? Wash his feet with respect, with love. What, what is the character of the person on this very night, Paul wants to point out? This, this one who instituted this supper that we're remembering. He's like, and you guys can't even wait to eat for a brother or sister in Christ? It puts, it, it puts things in context here. Now, he's going to continue on. He'll say, verse 24, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup in the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These are familiar verses. Uh, now I know there's a lot of traditions in the church around communion. People come from a lot of different backgrounds as to how the communion is taken, uh, when it's taken, how often it's taken. You might get your hand slapped. You might have to dunk it. You might not. There's a lot of different things around communion. Uh, I think it's important to say the, we have to remember what is happening here when Paul writes this. Paul is writing this to make a specific point about the character of the communion table and the person who instituted it. He's not writing this to tell us everything we need to know about the the communion uh, ritual or how it plays out. That's not what his point is here. He's speaking to the Corinthians about an issue that's going on. He's not giving an exhaustive teaching on communion. So... It's always important to keep the scripture in context. The second thing I will say is obviously the original tradition from Jesus himself was not understood by those disciples as a mystical transformation of the literal body and blood of Jesus. There is no way that Peter was sitting there thinking that and those were the ones who passed down the ritual from Christ himself. So the Catholic doctrine is not something that we would hold to. But I will say that what Paul wants to emphasize, again, of the body, of the blood, again, shows us something of his character. The bread is called Christ's body in the same sense that the cup is called the new covenant. We receive the benefits of Christ's body and blood that they procured for us through faith in Christ. And notice he says his body was broken for you. A substitutionary atonement all through the scripture. His body was offered like the sacrificial lamb. That's what they would understand. He was the lamb of God. That paschal lamb for them. Paul puts that now to the Corinthians. It was for you, he says, Christ's body was offered. For us. Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 10:5, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. People think a lot about their physical bodies in our world. Jesus was given a body to sacrifice. That was why he took a human body on, and to sacrifice for me and for you. He He didn't take it on just to live out all the full enjoyment of a good, happy life. He took it on to give it, to have it be surrendered to torture, to death, even the death of the cross. He said, a body thou hast prepared for me. Sacrifice and offerings, you didn't really want those, but a body you've prepared for me. Paul saying, do you, do you understand who this was, what he did when you take the bread? Is this body given for you? Do you understand that? Notice he'll say, again, in the cup, after the supper, saying, "This is the new covenant in my blood. this and as often as you drink it, do it, in remembrance of me." The cup of the new covenant, the old covenant and we looked at it in Romans, it gave laws, but it never changed anybody. The old covenant, you shed the blood of a lamb because you had to cover your sin. But it didn't give you a new nature. But the new covenant in Jesus' blood, does something different that the blood of lambs or bulls or goats in the old covenant could never do. In the new covenant, you have a new nature. The Bible says we're born again. The Bible says we're new creations. Again, Hebrews 8 would say, for this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's saying the character of the person who shed his blood for you is extended to you in the new covenant. He's put his laws in your mind and in your heart. He's made you something new. He secured that for you through his blood. You're taking up that cup. What we say is true in that moment. Is that reflective of how you're living toward the people around you right now? Of the way that you're saying you're coming to celebrate this meal? you saying, is that the Lord's Supper? This is what he did for us. And he tells us to remember those things. Paul wants them to see and remember how giving jesus is how loving jesus is and who he made them in the new covenant in his blood and then say is that the meal you're celebrating is that how you're treating one another or relating to one another in light of the reality of those things 26 He'll say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So every time they came to the Lord's Supper, they were going to proclaim something. That word proclaim is most often translated preach in the scriptures. They would preach something. They were saying something. They were saying something about him and they were saying something about themselves. And when we take communion, we say something about Jesus Christ and about ourselves we say he's a great savior. We say that we're great sinners. We also say we've been made a part of something. And whatever is said about us is said about the people around us too. Whatever we think about them, Jesus did the same for them. He died for them. Paul says, what are you proclaiming? As often as you do it presently, you do show forth the Lord's death. In the past, until he comes in the future. Because when he comes, there's no more worrying about forgetting it. The problem is now we forget the things we need to remember. Usually, remember things that would be best if we forgot. But in this scenario, Paul's saying, What are we proclaiming? If somebody just showed up at that Corinthian meal, what would it say to an outsider? And somebody shows up at one of our communion services, what will it say? They sit down next to us and watch how we worship or pray or seek him in his word or interact with one another. Would that unsafe person will walk away and say, like, those people don't care about each other. That person didn't even sing a single sentence of that song. They must not really believe that. They were distracted on their phone the whole time. What do we proclaim This Corinthian church, what they were proclaiming was not that they were taking the Lord's Supper. They were proclaiming something else, and they needed to see that. Paul says, can I praise you for this? I can't praise you for this. Therefore, verse 27, he's going to bring back his line of correction here. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Therefore, takes us back. Paul comes back to his correction here. He's shown them again what Christ instituted, reminding them about who he is and what he did on our behalf, challenging what they're actually saying, and then says, if you don't recognize that, you can take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, what does Paul mean by that? First, it has nothing to do with unbelievers. They're not even in the context. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church here, who's taking communion and remembering Christ. Secondly, it has nothing to do with their own personal worthiness in terms of salvation. That was the very reason Jesus had to die. That was why he gave his body for them and shed his blood. This is not us looking at ourselves saying, am I worthy of salvation in and of myself, my own righteousness and good works. That's not what he's saying. If people look at themselves that way You'll never be anything but depressed. We can never be worthy on our own. We're supposed to look to him for our salvation. Paul is not talking about the worthiness of the person here. He's talking about the worthiness of the manner or motives in which they come to the Lord's Supper. I actually find it very interesting. Paul never calls into question the reality of the salvation of these Corinthian believers. I mean... Most of us, if we came to our next communion service and a dude was sitting next to you drunk, you'd probably be like, I wonder if that guy's really saved. But Paul doesn't, he just says, you guys are stuffing yourselves and leaving nothing for poor people and sitting there drunk before you take the Lord's communion. But he, he never even questions their salvation. He, he totally assumes they're believers. Most Christians go to the opposite and they just want to tell everybody who's saved and who's not. I think we should be very careful about that. They they must be smarter than the Apostle Paul. These people who are claiming Christ, even though their lives do not always show it, Paul doesn't challenge that belief per se. He doesn't even challenge it of the dude who's sleeping with his stepmom in chapter 5. But what he does is he challenges their profession and their practice. So if you profess to be a Christian, then you should not take unworthily the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not because you're worthy of your own salvation, but because of what you claim to be true in your life already. He's addressing their practice, not necessarily their person's worthiness for salvation themselves. C.H. McIntosh put it really well in his book, Handfuls of Pasture, Volume 1. He says this, I never think of setting my child to judge as to whether he is my child or not, but I expect him to judge himself as to his habits. For if he do not, I may have to do by chastening what he ought to do by self-judgment. It is because I look on him as my child that I will not allow him to sit at my table with soiled garments and with disorderly manners. That's the whole point. Who takes it unworthily? Sons and daughters of God. The manner in which they were approaching the table was unworthy of what their profession is, of what their reality is as sons and daughters of God, as children of God. So his challenges there, not because we're saved by personal holiness, But we are saved to personal holiness. And Paul says, I'm not seeing that at this meal. How that's happening is totally out of whack with what you're claiming. Do not take it unworthily. There's there's an idea of preparation there. That's why he says in verse 28, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine ourselves not for salvation, again, but because of salvation. So I claim to be a Christian. This is real simple. A follower of Jesus Christ. I claim to be remembering his body broken for me and his blood shed for me. And I claim to be doing that with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Is my manner of life up to my claims? That's what Paul's saying here. Or is it unworthy of what I claim to be true? That's the challenge. Examine yourself. And he doesn't say, then, run away from the table. Notice. He says, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. To examine means to test or prove. It's used throughout the scriptures in numerous ways. But the idea is there's preparation for participation. We're not just moving through religious rituals here, which is very dangerous for all of us who are used to living in Christian realms. Is what I'm professing true? Is the manner of my life up to what I profess? Not because I'm trying to figure out if I'm a son or daughter of God, because I am a son or daughter of God. And Paul says, do I see myself? Am I examining myself, seeing my life in the light of the cross and remembering his body and blood? Or am I ignoring, justifying, embracing, celebrating, enjoying the sin in my life that Jesus had to die for? That's not worthy Of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If I say the Son of God had to spill his blood on the earth he made to pay for my sin and then defend and enjoy my sin, something's not measuring up. I can examine myself and come to the cross as a needy sinner. That's the good news. I can see my sin and say the same thing about my sin that Jesus does. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But if I show up and eat before all the poor poor people and get drunk and think that Jesus is cool with it just because I put a little bread and wine in my mouth, there's a problem. There's a problem. That's what Paul's saying here. You guys are having a nice social event but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. I don't know what you are doing, but it's not what he instituted. There's something totally different going on here. To take part in the Lord's Supper that way makes me guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I'm acting like those who ignore or reject or resist the fact that Jesus paid for their sins on the cross. I'm acting like those who are unsaved. But Jesus paying for my sins on the cross is what my whole life is about. We can make the same mistakes that those early Israelites made. They literally left the Passover, exited Egypt, went through the Red Sea. And like that, they're already worshiping another God. So quickly forgot what their freedom was all about. And here are the Corinthians i 'm sure it started well i'm sure believers were loving one another and they were having this meal and pretty soon, the meal turned into more about the food and more about who you 're hanging out with and more about the social setting. Pretty soon, selfishness, sin gets involved, and what 's happening, the main thing that 's happening totally to the side. Paul says. If you eat that way unworthily, you make yourself guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Have you forgotten what your life is all about? What Jesus has actually done for us? I have to realize where all my hope and forgiveness is. Then I realize that all of those around me in the body of Christ have the same hope as the foundation of their lives. Paul says, Examine yourself then. Let a man examine, I'll emphasize this word, himself. And so then, meat of the bread and drink of the cup. Not everybody else. You might be sitting there looking at some other person saying, man, they're a sinner. I know their life is a wreck. But they might be sitting there repenting, actually, while you're judging. And you might have something in your life that maybe isn't quite as obvious that's unrepented of. What Paul says is, "Let man examine himself. You're coming to the Lord's table. Then partake, eat, drink. We all come as sinners, but are we sincere? Do we come saying about ourselves what Christ says about us?" He'll extend this here, verse 29. He says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He's not seeing the true weight of it. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be contemned with the world. Sincere and humble examination in the light of the cross. If I don't do that, I put myself in the place where God can chasten me as his son or daughter. That's what Paul's saying. He said, if you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, if this is the way you're going to continue to participate in the Lord's Supper, you are going to even drink judgment to yourself. Because you're not truly discerning what the Lord's Supper is, is about. You're not actually recognizing what you're doing. You're going through the motions, we say. That's important because God is not going through the motions. And he's not playing around with the death of his son. His only son, the son of his love. It's not a joke to him. Never has been, never will be. It's the best thing on the face of the earth. It's the only hope mankind ever had. But it's not a game. And that's why Paul says in verse 30, for this reason, we don't know, maybe this has been passed down to him. He said, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Sleep is the word for a believer's passing out of this life. Paul says... Hey, this, is, this verse means exactly what it says. God's judgment is literally physically upon some of you because of this. That's why this is happening in your midst. We have cases of this through the scripture. King Josiah was a great king, went and tried to fight a battle. God didn't call him to, and he died in that battle. Samson, Ananias, Sapphira, 1 John 5, talks about a sin unto death. There's places where God steps in to judge, not the loss of salvation, but a present chastening so that we're not condemned with the world. You'll notice he'll say that in 32. He says, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God loves his sons and daughters, which means he's active in your life. Because he loves you, he will never be the senile grandpa God out there who's like, just have a good time and stuff you up with some candy and send you home. No, he loves you enough to be involved in everything in your life. And he'll chasten you when you need it. And he says, guess what, guys? This is the reason some of that chastening is happening in your midst. If that kind of scares you, well, it should. (laughs) Again, God's not playing games. There's a famous preacher who used to, they say, lean over the pulpit and say, it's a serious thing to believe in God. It's a serious thing to say you believe in God because he's God, and we're not. He's creator. We're creation. He's good, but I don't mess around with him. That's not what he's there for, particularly into playing religious games with the death of his son. He means business. Eternity is on the line for people. Heaven and hell is on the line. And God sees things with the perfect weight, which we typically don't. And so when he needs to step in, he will. And he cares more about his son than we know. And he cares more about his bride than we know. And he cares more about us as individual sons and daughters than we know. And so Paul says, because of your unworthy actions that have been left unjudged, God is now stepping in and he's going to deal with this situation. He'd say, 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. This is Paul's help. What does he want the Corinthians to do to keep themselves from this chastening? What's our preventative measure? Paul says very clearly here, it's self-judgment. If we would judge ourselves, if we would discern ourselves, we're not, he's saying, you guys aren't seeing yourselves clearly. You think you're just going and having a nice meal together. But he said, from a spiritual perspective, what you're doing is a total wreck. It's not even the Lord's Supper. You think you're having a good time gathering together. And Paul says, your gathering together is actually for the worse. And look at what's happening in your midst. God has to step in and judge. If you would judge yourselves, you would not be in that position. To judge ourselves is to say what's true of our own sin in the sight of God. Not in the sight of the culture or of the other people around us or even the other mature Christians we know. In the sight of God. Seeing things correctly is seeing things the way God sees them. That's what divine revelation is. It's what light is. It's to see my manner of living and my motives for living as God sees them. There's three levels of basic biblical judgment. The first level of basic bi- biblical judgment is self-judgment. And what that means is the Holy Spirit reveals to me my sinful nature in some regard. I cannot even see my sinful nature on my own. David would say, Lord, please reveal to me my secret sins. Keep me from presumptuous sins. He knew that he could be self-deceived. Lord, please create in me a clean heart, O God. Put truth in my inward parts. He, he recognized his own penchant for self-deception. And self-judgment is where the Holy Spirit speaks to a believer's heart, because if you're his son and daughter, you have his Holy Spirit, and the Bible takes that for granted. He's written his laws on your mind and your heart, and when you step out of his laws... He will speak to you and to your conscience and you will sense that in your conscience and you'll know it in your spirit. And that's the first line of judgment. If we can deal with things there, that is the best place to deal with things. If God's convicting you and you're like, I hate that. Love it. Love it instead. (laughs) Be like a wise man. Proverbs talk about wise man wearing that like an earring. God I will take God please give me a sensitive conscience let me hear what you have to say to me That's the first level of judgment things get settled between me and him repentance before me between me and him is a blessing and God gives that to an individual as a gift if I can deal with things there that's the best place to deal with them the second level of judgment the Bible gives us is church judgment. Paul had already mentioned this earlier, and it comes both personal and public. Matthew 18 talks about it. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about it. 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 3. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about church judgment. But what happens is this. If I, as a personal individual, refuse or resist the work that the Holy Spirit is using in terms of self-judgment, my sin that I have defended or excused or embraced for some reason spills out to other people around me. It could be my attitude. It could be my actions. It could be what I do. It could be what I don't do. But at some point, that unjudged sin that I have not self-judged is now going to be brought out to those around me. And somebody around me is going to say something. Or the church is going to step in and say something. As Paul said, they had to in 1 Corinthians 5. The judgment becomes public because you've refused to judge it privately. And when God sends somebody to us publicly, if that person is a godly individual, because Satan will use this too to condemn us, Satan will send somebody to you to condemn you about something that God's not trying to deal with in your life. There's bad versions of this. But if a godly individual comes to you and tries to talk to you about something in your life, you should bless God for that person. When when God sent Abigail to David, when he was about to chop Nabal's head off, (laughs) he blessed God for her. You saved me. He was going to make such a mistake. And he saw her as the hand of God in his life, keeping him. Such a humble response. And too often, what happens in our life personally begins to spill out to those around us publicly, and we can decide then to defend that or to blow it off or to give some reason why we're still okay. And that public judgment is going to come into our life. To the furthest extent that can happen in the Christian church, a person can be put out of the church or out of fellowship, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. Unfortunately, that happens everywhere. It's not just for, you know, people who come to church. It's for pastors. It's for everybody everywhere. i have had pastors here that... We've had to put out of the ministry and every single one of them have refused public judgment in their own lives first before the church judgment had to step in. When God brings public judgment to us through the church, we should respond. To the Corinthians, this is happening. Paul's doing it. God's sending a messenger with his message to them to respond. And when that is refused... Then, what's left is divine judgment. When we refuse to judge our own wrongs and we refuse to respond to the correction of those that the Lord sends to us, there's only one person left. God's like, You're my kid. And I don't play games because I love you. And I'll do whatever I have to do to deal with these situations like a doctor that makes an incision to get rid of some rot or cancer, he's going to go as far as he has to go. It could be his own child. He's not going to have mercy because he knows this is what needs to happen to save their life in the end. And God's biggest concern is eternal life in the end. And Paul says, if you would judge yourselves, then God wouldn't be in this position. He's already been trying to talk to you individually. He's already been sending correction to you. And this is happening in your lives because you force him to step in. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But even when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Paul says then, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Listen, when you guys come together, when you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he brings it all the way back again, the selfish, unloving interactions with one another. He says, listen, wait for one another, recognize one another. Yeah, you know, we've all been the hungry person at the table, trying to be like, come on, come over, I'm so hungry, it's getting cold, right? But obviously something bigger here is happening than just the eating. There was a horrible testimony happening here, both to other believers and to the unsaved world that would walk in. Paul's going to talk to them later about the unsaved world walking in when they're worshiping the Lord. If they're all speaking in tongues at the same time, nobody understands what's happening. It's a terrible witness. He said, if they hear you praising the Lord in their own language, they're going to say, God is in this place. I didn't even know it. It was a terrible witness. And it was unworthy of sons and daughters of God who are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says needs to be examined and judged. Not whether you're saved. You are sons and daughters of God. But is your conduct worthy of what you profess? Worthy of what Jesus Christ instituted? It was a serious challenge. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. That's Paul's whole point. If, if you can't control yourself, you have a house, he said earlier. Eat at home. Go eat at home. Some people think this was maybe a, a, a shameful thing where he's literally saying, don't even come to the meal. I think Paul's more, point is more, if you recognize that, eat before you come. You have a house. You can privately fill up. If you are just starving, fill up before you come, and then when you come to the meal, you'll be able to share and think about other people. All you can think about is a cheeseburger. Eat the cheeseburger. If you needed a hot dog before you came in here tonight, you should have ate a hot dog, okay? So the picture here is very simple. The, the point is their, their personal appetites, their own selfishness, Their own love for themselves had totally changed the character of the meal at the Lord's Supper. And their love for one another, that was supposed to be a reflection of the one who gave his body and blood for us, was totally out of character of what they were professing. And Paul says, the rest, who knows what the rest is? Like, that's not enough. The rest I will set in order when I come. If, if they got that right, I think Paul was pretty sure everything else is going to be okay. But this, this is something that was serious. And I think, again, for us, it's a challenge for us to say, okay, Lord, when I'm coming to these things, am I just playing games? Is this real for me? That personal examination and personal judgment that he calls us to, it's not just on a Sunday we're having communion. This can't become ritualistic for us. It can't be the type of thing where one day a week when I know I have a communion, I get real serious, repent, and then go take communion. And then six days of the week I forget about God and turn my back to him. (laughs) If I don't worship the other six days, I don't worship Sunday either. This is a, a reality, a life reality. Do I walk with God? Is what, what I'm professing true in manner and in motives with my life? That's what he died to do in us. And where I see myself fall short, because we all will, and where the Holy Spirit begins to point out things in my life that are not Christ-like, because we all will, I need to respond in sincerity and truth, and when I do that, Paul says, "Then come, eat the bread, drink of the cup. It's there for you. God has made a way for imperfect sinners to walk with the Son of God. We walk in the light and have fellowship with Him, and His blood cleanses us from all sin. There's no greater gift in the world. Let's stand." Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what can we say but thank you? We know outside of you, Lord, we have no hope. Outside of you, we have no life. Outside of you, we have no Father to watch over us and keep us and even to chasten us and discipline us as sons and daughters. So Lord, I pray that you would give us sincerity of heart, I pray that you would make true of us what David prayed, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we can walk with you in true light, Lord Jesus, that we could examine and judge ourselves through the light of your Holy Spirit. And have no fellowship, Lord, with the works of darkness. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, again, that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us, that you promise that. So, Lord, you know where each of us are individually. You know what we need from you in these things. I pray, Lord, that you would graciously provide those things in your Holy Spirit. I pray for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.